it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by Senator Joni Ernst, is having every GOP candidate over for a big event in Iowa, except for the former President of the United States, who's going to be with John Sean Hannity tonight. And Brett Forrest is here also. In a matter of moments, you'll meet him. National Security Reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of a brand new book called Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret War. But before we talk to Brett, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. He offered us the opportunity to come look at it in a private chip, but he he was going to redact it. My experience with getting documents from the FBI when they're redacted, there's very... It's all black lines. They don't show anything. Yeah, there you go. James Comer just shows us the unclassified documents. That's all he wants to know. And stop with the half measures, Christopher Ray. That's the message from Comer to Ray. What's in the form and how are the allegations no less than three with more than less than three whistleblowers with ugly claims about the Biden administration being treated? Number two. You know, he was a very disloyal person. He had no chance of winning the election. I got elected in 20, 2018 by 32,000 votes out of more than 8 million votes cast. That is Donald Trump and the number two guy right now, Governor Ron DeSantis. The big guns are both in Iowa. As new guys announce they're ready to join them, Christie and Pence, we will have it all. Number one. The final total, 314 to 117. 149 Republicans voted yes. 165 Democrats voted yes. Uh, there you go, Chad Pergram. Deal done in the House. But not before 70, 71 Republicans voted no. The debt ceiling agreement now moves to a divided Senate, where it's expected to pass and be signed by the president. Who won? Who lost? And who doesn't default? Well, it looks like we won't. And I think Senator Schumer knows you can't send that bill back. But let's meet Brett. Brett, great to see you in person. Yeah, thanks for having me. Brett. And congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I mean, the, the first thing that, that comes to mind, too, is your colleague, the Wall Street Journal reporter, uh, scooped up for being a spy right. by the Russians. We all know he didn't. He's not a spy. And Brett, in fact, uh, uh, he wrote his column. Evan wrote his column. And it just so happens his last column talked about how the sanctions are paying such a economic toll on the Russians. Do you think it has anything to do with it? Well, I think uh, it's not so much a specific article that he wrote. It's it's really the Russian state made a decision. They wanted to do something like this. They had a list drawn up. That's that's our understanding of possible targets. And, And they wanted to go after somebody. They wanted to take a Western reporter, preferably an American, to make a statement. And they did, even though he's got a Russian background, really liked the country and was just doing his job. Uh, any reason, any way that he's linked to being a spy is just comical. Evan is a dedicated professional journalist, period. Why are the Russians feeling so bold to do this? Well, I mean, between uh, the Marine, between the WNBA star, Griner, and now this. It's a great question, and uh, you know, I, I lived in Moscow for five years, and I've been working there in Russia for twenty years, and uh, and I've seen this evolution. 
it really goes back to uh, a case that the DEA put together against uh, the arms dealer Victor Boot in 2008. After that, uh, the DEA then uh, took another Russian, uh, a pilot, uh, who was smuggling drugs in Africa. See, but you just described two people doing bad things. Exactly, exactly. These were people committing crimes internationally. Um, the U.S. took them down, and uh, over a number of years, the Russians decided, you know, we're going we're gonna to react to this. So they started taking Americans. And what's the, what's the consequences? They get their people. They get their people back. Victor well, Boot is back. Brittany Griner's back. Exactly. And that really comes to, you know, a decision for the administration or various administrations. Uh, how do you deal with this? Do you, how, will you play hardball with the Russians, and what's the result? Um, we also see the uh, we Sergey McGinsky, and we had the famous McGinsky Act. Yep. And the McGinsky Act is uh, the lawyer for Bill Browder, mm-hmm. who was tortured and killed, mm-hmm. uh, and they in an effort to get Bill Browder to come back because they feel as though he was a billionaire by illegal, illicit means, but he wasn't. He just happened to be a capitalist in Russia. That's right. That's right. I mean that. That case, the Magnitsky case, uh, related to Browder's uh, activities and investments in Russia, really shows the sort of cynical, uh, deep cynical nature of uh, of uh, some folks in Russia who've come to power and influence. Uh, this was uh, a scheme perpetrated by people uh, who were Russian officials, uh, and they were simply trying to uh, to steal money uh, baldly. Which kind of interesting. I don't know if it plays into this, but Tara Reid, the accuser of Joe Biden. She has now defected to Russia. And Edward Snowden, when he decided to give up some secrets and intelligence, he didn't want to be a whistleblower. He didn't trust the process and went from Hong Kong to Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always thought that that speaks volumes. I mean, the fact that someone like Snowden would would do what he did and then take refuge in a place like Russia without criticizing Russia certainly says something. And you'll remember, too, in 2013 when he took refuge there, um, there was talk about – uh, possibly making a trade for for Snowden for Victor Boot or for the Russian pilot that I mentioned, but instead, but we don't want him back. No, well, maybe not. Maybe not now. But at the time, there was serious talk about that. But instead, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, granted uh, Snowden asylum. Um, I do want to talk about what's happened in Russia. They got Moscow got hit a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. There's been some strikes inside Russia. Mm-hmm. This is not the way the Ukraine invasion was supposed to go for Russia. Could you describe what it's like as we watch the ineptness of their military, the unwillingness for those to serve, the, un, uh, the unavailability of the children of rich people in Russia to actually fight this war, the private armies that are sprouting up because their real army is not doing much? Yeah. Well, goodness, we haven't we seen a great surprise there? I mean, before this war began, we uh, we all, I think, mostly held the Russian military in, in high esteem, right? And we've seen how poorly they've uh, they've behaved on the battlefield. And you're right; it's uh, their their lack of success has really uh, uh, revealed a lot of fissures uh, within. Does the it Russian. surprise you as somebody who lived there? Uh, you know, it doesn't because. Um, for one, we're aware of the great corruption within the Russian military, and we've seen how that how how that has been borne out within the war. You see a lot of people, a lot of soldiers, and who are unprepared, who don't have the right gear, who don't have the right weapons. And we see a lot of old weapons, unguided missiles, you know, hitting apartment buildings. We see just the lack of planning over many years of the Russian military, and that, of course. Gives rise to people like uh, Prigozhin, who's the head of Wagner, the uh, you know the, the the paramilitary group, to to stake his own claim to power. 
And Wagner, who has this elite unit, well, next thing you know, he's recruiting in prisons. Right, right. So how elite are you if you have no choice but to serve or die or rot in a cell? You know, interestingly, I, I spoke with a couple uh, gentlemen who are uh, in prison in Russia currently, and they told me that uh, that Wagner came to their, their prison uh, twice last year, and they described the conditions. They said that, uh, you know, that uh, the, the first wave of recruitment actually uh, uh, a lot of people volunteered for it. But then uh, subsequently they learned that uh, the, the, the guys who went to war didn't fare so well. Um, it's a death sentence. Basically, because a lot of these guys are just they're just cannon fodder uh, for Wagner. I mean, you remember the movie The Dirty Dozen, right? Sure. This is sort of like uh, a perverted Russian version of that. With me right now is Brett Forrest, National Security Reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of a new book, uh, Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret War. So tell me about the book, Brett. How did you uh, stumble upon this story? How did you pursue it? Right. Well, this came to me actually late 2017. It's a long time ago now. It was a source of mine, an American guy with uh, deep contacts in Russia. And also um, he was being considered for positions in the incoming uh, Trump administration. And he told me that he knew of uh, a, a story, a case of a young man from Michigan who'd gotten uh, wrapped up with the FBI, worked for the FBI for five years as what's known as a confidential human source, working mostly in counterterrorism. And uh, one day after the war in, uh, in, in Russia began, in Ukraine, that is, uh, he told his parents that he was traveling to Russia. This was 2015. He went there. He was there for about six weeks. Suddenly he disappeared. His parents lost track of him. And very soon after that, his FBI handler came to the door, said he knew nothing about the trip to Russia, and began confiscating devices from the family and eventually shut them out. And right away I knew that this was a story that I could possibly pursue for the Wall Street Journal. But I also thought that um, if we were able to get results here for the family, that this could be something that could be expanded into a book. So that's interesting. You go from a reporter to basically a supporter, mm -hmm. well, an advocate, well, uh, an investigator. I, you know, interesting. Interesting. I wouldn't say that necessarily. Uh, you know, I'm I'm always a reporter. I don't advocate for people. Um, what I was trying to do in this story was to investigate it, to get a result, to find out what happened to this this gentleman named Billy Riley. And what what made you uh, well with your experience in Russia? You mm -hmm. felt as though you could be successful, but well, Russia is constantly changing, becoming a more hostile place. Did that give you second thoughts? Well, it did. It did. I mean, I've seen the evolution. When I first went to Russia in two thousand two, as you remember, uh, Vladimir Putin was pretty new in the job. We kind of the United States kind of liked him. Uh, he was very close with George W. Bush, or at least he seemed so. They they spent time on his ranch in Texas. Remember, I looked into his soul. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, but I, I saw that relationship deteriorate between our two countries over over many years because of him. Would you say, or does it be, do you do you, do you blame us? Um, well, that's a very good question. Uh, these things are 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 never so clear. Um, I, it, it's difficult to place blame. I, I mean. If I had to place it in, on one person, it would be Vladimir Putin, simply because he has stayed in power too long. And when you stay in power too long, often your thoughts turn to your place in history. And I don't want a leader who's t thinking about his place in history. Right. I want a leader who's thinking about doing what's right for the country. And what you had to do is deal with Vladimir Putin's Russia. And I don't want you to give away the ending of this. It's too important uh, to the story. Uh, it's really happened. It's not fiction. 
but could you give us an idea of what you found when you started pursuing or the venues you started first looking? Certainly. So I knew uh, initially that the parents uh, had gone to Russia themselves in search of their son, and they had gone there, I believe, in uh, 2017. Now, they're just uh, regular folks from Michigan. They don't have any contacts over there. They don't know anybody. And, uh, you know, they tried their best. They really dedicated their lives to this. Um, I thought that I might be able to help because of my experience there, because I indeed do know people and I can get around and have language skills. So I learned that uh, Billy had um, had flown to Moscow and then taken a train down to a southern city in Russia uh, called Rostov-on-Don, which was the staging ground for Russian military activity just across the border into eastern Ukraine. And I learned that Billy uh, had set himself up at a, a camp there for volunteer fighters, these were guys, mostly Russians, but international people as well, who were collected down there uh, with the intent to cross the border into Ukraine to join volunteer wow. fighter battalions fighting against Kiev in the eastern part of Ukraine. So here you had a guy who was an FBI source who was at a Russian volunteer fighter camp. On his own? And the FBI tell okay, the FBI telling you he's on his own. Well, the FBI, of course, is uh, not really saying much. Um, I mean, this this book began as an article in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, and I gave the FBI pre-publication of more than a hundred questions, and the FBI didn't answer a single one. Uh, they did give me one single line, and they said that they had not sent Billy Riley to Russia, and that's it. Got it. So a few more minutes uh, with Brett Forrest when we get back. Brett, I want to ask you about what's going on with Christopher Ray's FBI. And what your take is and talk more about this story. Uh, listen, this is a real life mystery. Lost son, an American family trapped inside the FBI secret war. Brett Forrest of The Wall Street Journal here. Uh, don't move. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show on Thursday. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's really unfortunate the notion that the FBI is some sort of leftist cabal out to get the Republicans. It's so crazy, it just shows you how crazy our times are. The FBI will be fine in the long run. This fever around Donald Trump and the MAGA world will eventually break, but it's become somehow a nutty article of faith that the FBI is out to get Republicans. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming that he's a fraud and he shouldn't be trusted and he's sanctimonious and self-obsessed and was one of the worst FBI directors who's done more damage to their organizations than just about anybody else. Welcome back, everyone. Brett Forrest, National Security Reporter for The Wall Street Journal with us, author of uh, Lost Son, An American Family Trapped Inside the FBI's Secret War. And this family turned to Brett Forrest to help find his son located uh, located inside Russia 
And that's what this story is about. Uh, Brett helping uh, the family, but more importantly, just trying to find out what exactly is going on as the FBI cleaned out his house. And then the family was left really with no way of getting, getting in touch and finding out what happened to their son. So that's all chronicled in his story. Uh, Brett, you spend so much time in Russia and the Ukraine. You just told me in the break, uh, outside Kiev is Bucha. And once it was clear that Kiev was not going to be captured by the Russians, it's going to be a longer uh, war. They backed out and they unveiled. What did they unveil in Bucha? You were the first reporter on the scene to see this massacre. Yeah, that's right. I, I happened to be in Kiev at that time, and I saw a photo on uh, social media of uh, several bodies with their uh, wrists uh, tied behind their backs, and I and I knew that it was located nearby, and so I raced out there with uh, you know the bodyguard and a photographer and a fixer. And we arrived with incredible timing. It just so happened uh, that the local militia was retaking the town. They, we pulled up to the administration building, and they were just reinstalling the Ukrainian wow. flag, and they were singing the national anthem just as we were getting out of the car. It was just uh, a happenstance. And um, and the local uh, militia leader, he's, he said, you know, come back another day. It's too dangerous here. Uh, Russians have booby-trapped the town. We haven't had, a to- had time to clear it. And, you know, and I – there was great appetite for information. This was the first month of the war. Um, it was maybe like six weeks in. And uh, we needed to know what had happened there. So I persuaded him to give me a couple of guys, and, and we drove around the town. And, uh, you know, uh, it was it was raw. It was as raw as you can imagine. Death? Because, yeah. I mean, there were hundreds of bodies um, all around Butcher. Civilians or, or military? I didn't see a single body wearing any military uniform. So it was the the mass killing of mm-hmm. innocent Ukrainians. Yes. And a lot of these people were elderly, uh, women, men, uh, a, a great mix of just local inhabitants. Um, you know, people who were killed uh, clearly while they were riding bicycle. Executed. Yeah. Well, in many different ways, because I... Eventually got to talk to survivors, people who were huddling in, in basements for a month uh, trying to save themselves against the Russians and heard so many stories about uh, just senseless killings, also uh, uh, planned killings. For the, uh, Russians, they, they, they put snipers in different high positions, and when people would try and leave the town, they would take them out. Wow. Um, it's hard to shake that. Yeah. I mean, that's not something you can be prepared to see. So now the Ukrainians more determined than ever to take their country back. They have 17 percent, the Russians do. What do you expect with the surge in the last minute we have? I expect uh, the Ukrainians to throw everything they have Will they have at success? The Russians. It depends what you mean by success. I mean, Getting their country back? The Ukrainians have sacrificed so much that it's, it's very difficult for them to think about sitting down at the table with Russia. Will they hit Crimea first? I know that they, they are determined to take it back. That's all the way. Yeah. And that's why there's no nothing to talk about. One country invaded the other and is not leaving. So there's no, how do you talk peace? That is the central thing to remember. Uh, by the way, pick up a great book. Brett Forrest, a fantastic reporter, lost son, an American family trapped inside the FBI's secret war, and read everything Brett writes. Brett, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Writes for the Wall Street Journal. Senator Jody Ernst next. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There is no substitute for victory. 
And we need to dispense with the culture of losing that's infected the Republican Party. We've had three disappointing election cycles in a row, and that's not going to cut it this time. We need the courage to lead and we need the strength to win. I got elected in 20, 2018 by 32,000 votes out of more than 8 million votes cast. I was actually told, hey, the state's evenly balanced. You get in as governor. Don't rock the boat. Uh, keep your head down because you don't want to upset this political balance. And I understood that advice, but I rejected that advice. But we showed leadership. Uh, that is uh, Governor DeSantis telling his story for the last week, making it official. He's been telling it for a while that he's going from a successful governor and he wants to become the Republican nominee and eventually president of the United States. So Senator Tim Scott, uh, so does Governor Asa Hutchinson, so does Donald Trump. So soon, Chris Christie and Vice President Pence are going to come in this weekend. Uh, so is Nikki Haley, the ambassador and former governor. And there's a the field is growing just about every day in Vivek Ramaswamy. All those people, save Donald Trump, I believe, is going to be at Sony, uh, Senator Joni Ernst's big event this weekend on Saturday. And she joins us right now. Senator, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Brian. Great to be with you. So what is it about Senator Joni Ernst that's attracting such a prestigious crowd in Iowa? Well, I don't think it's me. I think it's our wonderful state of Iowa. So we are the first in the nation caucus state. And so we have all of these really inspirational leaders that are vying for the presidential candidacy uh, on the GOP ticket. And they're coming out. They're meeting the Iowa voters. And I happen to be convening my roast and ride this Saturday. And we have eight of those hopefuls that will be joining me on the stage. They'll be able to speak to Iowans and anyone in attendance and and really share their message on the greatness of, of America and where they want to see our country go in the future. I know that I, I remember Scott Brown did this over in Massachusetts, and now you're bringing all the candidates here, not only as a Republican senator uh, with a military background. This is probably one of the first times these candidates, declared candidates, are getting together. What's the format? You said roast and ride. So motorcycles? You bet. Of course. Um, we kick off the day at 1030 at the Big Barn Harley-Davidson in Des Moines, Iowa. If you want to know more about it, go to roastandride.com. I will be leading uh, those motorcyclists as we go on about a 45-minute ride through the Des Moines area out into the countryside. And we will end up at the Iowa State Fairgrounds in Des Moines, Iowa. And from there, then, these candidates will be able to get on the stage. They'll have a period of time where they can address the crowd. They'll be able to work the crowd as well, visiting with people. It is a family-friendly event, as always. But yes, it is motorcycles. It is entertainment. It is great Iowa pulled pork. It is our politicians, of course, uh, taking the stage and, and I hope inspiring these Iowans to get on board with the various candidates and and again, it's just a really great time. Uh, the motorcycle ride that I do every year uh, that kicks off the day, those proceeds I always donate to a veteran's charity. And this year, the, the proceeds will go to the Freedom Foundation of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Okay. It's a veterans helping veterans organization, who great you, group. Who are you going to endorse? 
Well, uh, you know, Brian, I, I'm very cagey about it. I'm, I'm not going to endorse anyone. Uh, Governor Reynolds and Chuck Grassley, our senior senator, and I, we have this pact that we don't endorse because we want all of these candidates to feel welcome as they come into the state of Iowa. So today, uh, so we'll find out how that goes. What kind of RSVPs do you have? Do you expect all you expect everyone there except President Trump? Well, we have not heard from President Trump. I have spoken to him about the event directly. Um, so, uh, you know, who knows if he shows. It might be a little late to get him on board now. Uh, I hope that he will be sharing a message, though, with our audience. So we do have eight uh, that intend to be there. It is Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Asa Hutchinson, Perry Johnson, and Larry Elder. So a great group of people. You know, you've heard them speak. We just heard, you know, a little bit of the clip from Ron DeSantis. These are great Americans. I'm so proud right. that they are running on the GOP ticket. We'll have to discuss, including the debt deal that's going to be on your plate as a sitting senator. Get it done this week. Uh, to raise the debt ceiling. A lot of 70 plus Republicans not happy with it. Others are Derek Van Orden, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan all voted for it. Comer voted for it, I I believe. Here's Senator Tim Scott. This is what he told me on Fox and Friends 20 minutes ago. Cut 14. Will you vote to raise the debt ceiling? Short answer is no. The long answer is when I think about what's in the deal, I find that uh, two things are really important. Number one, that Kevin did a good job of figuring out how to negotiate with someone who did not want to negotiate. The question I ask myself is, at the end of the negotiation, is it in our best interest as a nation to allow Joe Biden, someone we cannot trust on spending, to have an open checkbook, no limit on the credit card, until the end of his term? And his answer was no. What's Senator Ernst going to do? Well, I again, I would agree with Tim that this is not a, a great deal, but there is a lot in there that I will be proud to support. So I will be a yes vote. Um, I believe that my senior senator, Chuck Grassley, is also a yes. All Iowa uh, delegation members were a yes uh, in the House last night. I think it is responsible for us to move forward on this deal. Um, we see significant headway in deficit reduction of one and a half trillion dollars. We are putting work requirements on those that uh, are receiving welfare. These are a number of excellent steps that we would not have gotten otherwise. We do have the hard fact that we are in the minority here in the Senate. We don't have the White House. For heaven's sakes, people, if you want a different outcome, let's make sure we flip the Senate and that we do get the White House. Then we can move ahead with very ambitious goals. So Ron DeSantis Uh, came Ron DeSantis came out and said, you guys should have 55 Republican senators. He blames President Trump. Obviously, they're competing him, saying you're basically the wrong Don Bolduc in New Hampshire, the wrong candidate. I I think Dr. Oz was strong, but Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, the senator, uh, the the Senate candidate over in Colorado. Do you believe you guys should have had 55? Yes, I I actually do, Brian. I think we should have had the majority in the Senate. You know, whatever that number was, we should have had the majority. And we've got to have folks that will come forward, all the right candidates that are stepping up, saying, you know what, I want to serve my nation. I'll do it in the Senate. I'll do it in the House. Um, And then we've got to work to get them there as well. We need quality candidates, but we also need a strong platform on where do we want to take our nation 
inspiration. We have to be inspirational to the American people. We've got to help guide that message as we're out campaigning. Yes, we should have had the majority. So let's talk about something else. We've got two more topics. One is you have found out with Open the Books that we have given millions, millions upon millions to Russia, sometimes through China. At a time in which this country invades another country, they've become a pariah nation, and we're leaning on sanctions. What did you discover about the money, American tax dollars going to Russia? Oh, my gosh. We have so much waste that is going to Russia. It is outrageous. Um, dollars that are hardworking taxpayer dollars that are going to China. And it is done in a number of ways. Sometimes it's done through grants, as we have seen, um, through the work of Open the Books, the White Coast Waste Project, all of these great organizations that dig in, find out where those taxpayer dollars are going. But they're going to things like gender studies. They are going to issues like um, puppy parts, you know, purchasing puppy parts at the wet markets in China, um, studying transgenic mice in China. Uh, A million bucks went to cats on treadmills in Russia. And this has got to stop. And Mike Gallagher, um, congressman, of course, uh, over in the House, he's working with me on an effort to actually stop dollars from going to China and Russia. Uh, So uh, my squeal award this month is going to the Department of Treasury. You know, they just we can't continue to do this. One point three million sent to China and Russia from 2017 to 2022. Four hundred ninety million paid to Chinese organizations. Why? Eight hundred seventy million to pay to Russian entities, which you have to watch. And I know, you know, we're financing these developing countries and educating them on gender studies and Mm -hmm. uh, on gay rights when we should be talking about things of national interest. And this State Department is going in the entirely wrong direction. Yeah, you are absolutely correct, Brian. And why are we spending those dollars, sending them overseas to our adversaries when we're have a, having a debt ceiling argument and debate um, in the Senate? We have got to stop that. I don't see the benefit of sending money to our greatest adversaries when we are, you know, faced with uh, these these votes here in the Senate raising our debt ceiling. And, you know, trying to focus these taxpayer dollars on the things that we should be spending on, like military, like strengthening uh, the platforms and the survivability for our men and women in uniform. By the Uh, way, by the way, yeah, with with the financing, and I I would have voted to pass it. I saw a hard Kevin work. But the fact that defense spending is under inflation dollars is nuts because we're sending the wrong message to China and our adversaries that we're not serious let alone the recruiting problem we're having. You are, again, spot on, Brian. Um, These are the issues that that come to the forefront when we recognize we've we've got a problem. And the problem is that that we have a Democratic Party that believes on spending more domestically on, uh, you know, issues and and ideologies that have no business uh, being paid for with taxpayer dollars. When we talk about wokeism in the military, all of these efforts cost money. And yet we're not 
spending the dollars on survivability and lethality within our military. But again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, we have to have the majority. We have to have the right person in the White House. All of that matters. If we want our agenda to to move forward at all, we have to have the majority. You know, there is no question about it that we would be so much further ahead if we had a different president, if we had a majority in the Senate. But we can't go back and try and relive yesterday. We've got to focus on this upcoming campaign. We've got to focus on getting quality candidates. Then we can enact our agenda I hear and you. really do the right thing by the American people. I, I hear you. Um, and let's just see if it happens this time because I know you're talking about Donald Trump referring back to 2020. If he looks ahead and just runs on his policies, he'd be even stronger than he's running right now. Uh, lastly, just I know you go and you have a, a, an interest more than most senators in what's happening in Ukraine. What can you tell us about this offensive? And do you believe this? we're giving them what they need to be successful finally? I know it's gone too slow and mil- thousands have died because of that. But would it, no high Mars, no Patriot, they get Patriot, they get high Mars, no tanks, they got to get tanks. Now there's uh, no F-16s. We're going to train them on F-16s. The stop and start in this timid, timid way in which we're approaching this is maddening. What do you think, Senator? Yeah, Brian, we've had this discussion so many times. I'm an adamant supporter of Ukraine and pushing back on Russia. No. Are we getting them what they need on time? No, we are not. No, we are not. And all of those items that you've listed off, I have pushed for those. In the beginning, when the Ukrainians say we need X, Y, Z, I push for that because I think they know their military quite well. The problem is this administration, they're so slow to the gate. They're slow to get out of the gate. They're slow to deliver. We've got to do better. They are getting ready for a large counteroffensive in eastern Ukraine. We should be enabling their ability to win and to press the Russians out of Ukraine. Um, and yet we're so slow. Um, we are so, so slow. It's on this administration. And I'll continue to press for it. Mm. We've got to enable a win in Ukraine. Have you seen the battle plan for the surge? I have not seen the battle plan. No, that is not something that I am privy to. But uh, I do I do believe in the ability of the Ukrainians. We do have members of our armed services that have been teaching them in Poland and other places. They are strong and they are going to fight to the very last man and woman to retain their sovereignty. And guess what, Senator, if you kill 42,000 civilians, that will motivate uh, a population. And that's what they're doing. In my view, the Russians don't have the uh, the know uh, the wherewithal to attack the Ukrainian army. So they kill the women and children. And it's just gutless and cowardice. And that's why and there's right and wrong in this. And I just think that the good guys have to win uh, and we have to make sure it happens. Senator, great luck. Congratulations on putting this big event on Saturday. Uh, It's going to be great. We look forward to carrying the highlights on One Nation on Saturday night. Appreciate it. You bet. Roastandride.com. All right. Go get them. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst, thank you. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. You know, I'm just thinking we've had such a great hour. Brett Forrest of the Wall Street Journal, Senator Joni Ernst, and of course, uh, at Bruce Hugh, one 7669 I was wondering if we should end this hour with more to know. More to know. Invest in premium American whiskey as it ages. The older it gets, the better it gets. And the more valuable it gets. Go to caskdeeds.com. That's caskdeeds.com to learn more. Paid for by Spirits Capital Corporation. Absolutely. So let's get started. Shark Tank Barbara Corcoran warns that a bloodbath is coming from a certain real estate sector. Listen up. It's great to say pennies on the dollar, but no one has the confidence to buy it now. No one really believes it's going to turn the corner. You know, people are staying home. Our best office buildings in Midtown Manhattan are 50% occupied. And in most major cities or even secondary cities, we have a 20% vacancy rate. No one wants to take that chance. You know who's going to take it in the gut? Are the banks, the regional banks, the small banks who have financed it. And a lot of the different funds have come out now, and they're late on their mortgage payments to their lenders. And that's not a good sign. I don't see that turning around. I think it's going to be a bit of a bloodbath before it gets better. Yeah, Corcoran went on to say it's a Mexican standoff. According to Bankrate, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is about 6.8%. March 2023, it'll be 7.13%. Uh, it is. And now in May, uh, home buyers and sellers are staying put. No one's buying anything. And if you're 50% full, maybe you can't make your mortgage payment. You can't make your mortgage payments. All hell breaks loose. Look out for commercial real estate. Next, Tim- Timothy Bleenick found guilty in Family Feud murder trial. This lunatic was actually on Family Feud. Listen to what he said. What's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Honey, I love you, but said I do. Oh! Yeah, right. It got worse from there. Evidently, after 14 years, uh, she divorced him, told all her friends, if something happens to me, it's going to be his fault. He hopped on a bike, went in, climbed in a room, and shot her 14 times for every year they were married. What a nutcase. Uh, and how sad is that? Now, one goes to prison, the other one's dead. Who's going to raise the kids? Next. Oh, is that true? This music could only mean one thing. I've been denied my next story, and the end of the hour is here. Is there any way we could go longer? No way? I mean, you can, you can ask Eric by saying please, but I no, think No, I just wonder, can I yes. get more than 60 minutes in an hour? This way we don't have to... We have to change the brake structure. You, you can try. You can listen on one and a half speed. No, that that would be fat. That would be actually actually quicker, wouldn't it? From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, we're heard around the country, around the world. You can also get the podcast at BrianKillMeShow.com, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, so many of you getting it. It is great. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by the president of Freedom Works and uh, Adam Brandon. Uh, we'll find out the key no votes and yes votes when we talk about raising the debt ceiling and so much more. And we're also going to talk to Ben Dominich about our moments. And uh, Stuart Varney has met my price. I will allow my audience to be with his audience, and we'll do a simulcast with FBN. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. He offered us the opportunity to come look at it in a private chip, but he he was going to redact it. My experience with getting documents from the FBI when they're redacted, it's all black lines. They don't show anything. 
Right, and that's why he might go take a look, but it's not going to stop the subpoena. Just show us the unclassified documents. Stop with all the half measures, Christopher Ray. That is the message from James Comer. What is the form? Why can't we see what the whistleblowers are saying, writing, and talking about? This is getting ugly. Number two. You know, he was a very disloyal person. He had no chance of winning the election. I got elected in 20, 2018 by 32,000 votes out of more than 8 million votes cast. That was then, and then he had a huge election four years later. The big guns, both in Iowa, Trump and DeSantis. His new guys announced are ready to go. Christie and Pence, we have it all. Number one. The final total, 314 to 117. 149 Republicans voted yes. 165 Democrats voted yes. Deal done in the House. Not before 71 Republicans said no. The debt ceiling agreement now moves to a divided Senate. We talk about the GOP gains and the fallout. As default looms if the CNN, if uh, the Senate balks. Ben Dominic joins us now. Fox News contributor, editor at large at the Spectre World host of the Ben Dominic podcast. Ben, welcome back. How did you feel about that vote last night? So that vote uh, played out in uh, pretty much what I expected uh, to happen, Brian. For the past several days, I've been, you know, in close contact with the sources that I have on Capitol Hill, just paying attention to this. And, and one of the things that, you know, was really clear was that once they beat the hurdle of getting advancing the rule in order to have this uh, vote proceed, uh, it really was a foregone conclusion that ultimately this would pass. The Democrats uh, don't want to default, and the White House kind of put them in a bad position. A lot of them, I think, were, you know, frankly, uh, quite resentful of a number of the things that Republicans got in there. Uh, and especially when it comes to uh, the uh, the energy side of the equation, things that Joe Manchin likes, things that Republicans like when it comes to permitting, et cetera. Um, but there are other steps as well that are in there. And that really was, you know, a decision that uh, Thomas Massey, you know, a congressman who is obviously familiar to Fox viewers, is, uh, you know, a, was a critical uh, part of that. Uh, and obviously he's a, uh, a staunch fiscal conservative. He was one of the few people to oppose the kind of spending that we saw under COVID, under President Trump from the right. Uh, and uh, this time around, he went along with this because he sees enough in it uh, that is good. And keep in mind that the overall story here is one of the Democrats didn't want to do anything. They wanted a clean, quote unquote, clean debt ceiling hike where they didn't give Republicans uh, anything at all in order to make it happen. Joe Biden thought that he could, you know, outlast Kevin McCarthy and the, the narrow majority that they have in the House. Uh, and he turned out to be wrong. And ultimately, you know, the Republicans were able to extract some things out of this in a way that I think is positive. Now, is it as good as the deal that was made when they had a 240-person uh, majority back with John Boehner and you got the sequester and, and things out of that? Uh, no, it's not as it's not as good as that was. Uh, but then you had a much bigger majority and you had, you know, a lot of other factors that were going into that, uh, especially with Barack Obama worried mm -hmm. about uh, his political future. So this time around, I think what you could say is uh, Kevin McCarthy played a relatively weak hand extremely well and got a lot more than Democrats would have liked. See, to that's the way I feel. But I can't follow up, for example, the OMB is supposed to, you know, you have to get that money and reprogram it from the pandemic money to something else. They say it's going to sit in the Commerce Department. They don't know what's going to do with it. Uh, they say when it comes to the pay go, there's no enforcement because OMB has to enforce it. Well, doesn't Congress have to step up there and make sure they do what they're saying going to do? Here's Mike Lee. I'm with you, Ben, by the way. I, I think it's yeah. the best he could have gotten. I, I really respect the communication skills, too. Uh, of uh, Kevin McCarthy speaking to the press, keeping us all informed. Here's unlike the president of the United States who did nothing, uh, including actually negotiating, did zero. 
Can you yeah. Senator Mike Lee, cut eight. Now, the consequence of this surrender in this bill are grave. If enacted, this bill would grant President Biden everything without meaningful safeguards or provisions to address the pressing issues. While it may be hailed as some sort of triumph of bipartisanship, the American people will ultimately bear the brunt. Next, here's Dan Bishop, cut six. I think the indication in the vote that more Democrats voted for the bill than Republicans did, and of course Republicans have a larger number of members in the chamber, is a sign who got the best of the deal and and that the the benefits of the deal as sold by the leadership have not, they haven't been square with the American people about it. And, you know, you have other people trying to make sure. a move to oust him. And among the people on your side, Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Congressman Massey. Yeah, well, I, I think first off, you know, the idea that Kevin McCarthy is going to be ousted after a, a vote where he you know, won 67 percent of his of his conference on, to his side is just ludicrous. I don't take that seriously for even a minute. But I do think that, you know, in responding to both of these first, when when Mike Lee is saying this, I agree totally with his overall ideological you know, frustration with the fact that we have this scenario where we're going to just continue spending money. It's ludicrous that we have uh, just a default uh, assumption that this, this high level of spending that we saw during the pandemic is just going to continue going forward. That's unacceptable, and it's a long-term problem. The, the issue, though, I think here that we need to understand is, and especially, I think, uh, to Congressman uh, Bishop's point, I think that what people are underestimating about this scenario is that if McCarthy and, and, and his team had not approached this the way that they did, there was going to be a point where default uh, is is on the in the immediate is right around the corner, and that's when Mitch McConnell would start getting involved and Chuck Schumer would start getting involved, and that's a point where you end up with a much much worse deal at the end of the day, maybe even just a clean. I thought height. so too. And, yeah. and I think that that, you know, you can't trust the moderates in the House, too, the moderate House Republicans who want to avoid that, to not just have a discharge position that basically says, OK, you know what, we can't we can't get any deal. We don't want to default. Uh, we're just going to you know, we're just going to kick the can on this thing. And from my perspective, extracting some things, even if it is not a perfect plan, if even if it leaves all of these other major problems, uh, extracting some things in this moment when you have this slim House majority, that's good. It's a positive. It's better than what the alternative would have ended up being, I think, if you had had a McConnell and Schumer-led deal go forward. All right. Uh, and I, listen, that's the way it is. We'll see if Senate moves forward. They're going to move quick. They don't want to kick it back to the House. Schumer knows that will be problematic in a big way and against him. Uh, Andy Biggs said we were told we were we were told we would never be we would never uh, put a bill out that would get more Democratic votes than GOP votes. And that's what happened. But he was so going to be a no vote. And I if I take these guys in the Freedom Caucus, they're sincere. I get it. I want to just point out something wrong about what Andy Biggs said there. There's no way to control for that. When you have a slim of a majority, you can't actually control it. I mean, and especially with with the final way that that vote came out, as soon as Republicans saw that it was going to have plenty of votes to pass, that gives you permission as a fiscal conservative to vote against it. Okay, and so I think that this is that's the the idea that you would have some kind of uh, approach that would say we are never going to have a a, a bill come to the floor that has more people on one side uh, voting for it than the other. You don't have the control over that. What you can control is having things go to the floor only if you think it's going to get a majority of your own conference, which this did. Uh, Ben Dominich with us. And uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that. We'll see what happens in the Senate and we'll see where it goes from here. 
Uh, Mike Lee's against it. Senator Bernie Sanders is against it. Uh, Senator Joni Ernst is for it. And we could also say that Senator Tim Scott's against it. Uh, and let's speak about uh, 2024. Tim Scott's got a message he expects to put a lot of marketing out there and get into get out of single digits into double digits. Ron DeSantis has been out for a couple of days, uh, full force as a full candidate instead of rumored, thought to be, would like to be, thinking about it. He is now out there. Here's a, a little of Ron DeSantis on the stump on what he would do. Cut 18. We will reinvigorate our military by ensuring on day one all the politics and all the sideshows stop. We're going to focus on mission accomplishment. We're going to focus on merit and achievement. And we're going to reverse these poor recruiting trends because we need to have a strong military if we want to have a strong America. And part of that is because we understand we have one peer threat in this world, and that's the Chinese Communist The war on woke, he's not backing up. He's not backing off the six-week abortion ban. He's not backing off what they're calling book bans, which is inaccurate, appropriate books for the appropriate age. Uh, They don't say gay bill, which is not accurate, not talking about gender studies and telling picture sex uh, with toddlers and with uh, elementary school kids. So he's pretty much taking on Trump but moving forward and taking on Biden. Do you like the early approach, even though he's trailing by 20 or 30 points? Look, I think he's very much narrow casting at this point to these early states, especially, you know, we've just seen him in Iowa. He's going to focus on these early states. He has a team that uh, obviously has a lot of people who, you know, last time around, several of them were with Ted Cruz. He obviously won Iowa last time around. And I think that this is kind of a focus on, look, I've got to knock out uh, these early states and have victories or close to it in order to have any shot of beating Donald Trump. And I think that that's a a very practical way to approach things. You know, it still is a bit hinky. It's not really the smoothness that you would necessarily see. Uh, I do think that they're rolling out Casey DeSantis is a smart move. It's it's helping personalize him. It's reminding folks what it's like to have, you know, a young family in the White House, you know, something we haven't seen in a very long time. But I also think that one of the things that is uh, really going to be key going forward is how how he can talk about these issues that are in Donald Trump's wheelhouse, namely immigration, crime, you know, uh, law and order sort of stuff, uh, and of course foreign policy. Where I think that you know, frankly, Donald Trump proved that he could connect with voters last time around, um, and I think that you know one of the big we've seen this criticism about COVID, for instance. One of the big things that I think we need to see from Ron DeSantis is to say how he would have handled the summer of Floyd differently. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, this is the anniversary of all of that. And, and all these people, you know, are looking back at the, at the horrible nature of that summer. And I think that what we're what we need to hear from Ron DeSantis is what he would do differently as president when it came to the immigration problems, the border problems, the law and order problems, uh, where a lot of us feel like uh, more needed to be done under right. the Trump administration. And, and obviously. There was a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of courts who worked to stop him. You know, how would the outcome with Ron DeSantis in that job be different? I think going after DeSantis on COVID, it would be like saying that Aaron Judge doesn't hit for power. <laughs> I mean, you got to be kidding me. Uh, and by, so dumb. Right. Andrew Cuomo did a better job. Who are you kidding? Right. I mean, come on. The only person who really believes that is Andrew Cuomo, and I'm not sure he 100% believes it. Well, <laughs> and, and I'll say this, not as not as blatant as that, Ben, but I would also say going after Trump on the border is a little crazy, too. He fired yeah. three HSS directors. You know what he did to get the wall. It was Paul Ryan that didn't deliver on the wall funding and Mitch yeah. McConnell, and then he repurposed defense funding, and then he paid for it and Joe Biden lets it rot in the desert. 
So you yeah, might say, well, ultimately, Chris Christie has the same R attack. I ultimately, it's, he's just not vulnerable there. I think people know what the wall meant to him. I, I absolutely think you're right about that. I think, again, it's, it's kind of the effectiveness thing. Do you like Donald Trump's policies, but do you wish that he, he was more effective at making them happen and getting around the yeah. roadblocks thrown up by, you know, frankly, you know, he's, again, he does not come from the world of government, did not come from the world of government, didn't necessarily know how to pull all the levers and didn't necessarily know the way to make things happen, uh, you know, as effectively as he could in the private sector. And I think that Ron DeSantis basically has to argue, if you like these policies, I like them too. I'll get them done. And if, if he is able to advance that argument to enough people, and this is the other thing, you know, Brian, in the world of media, you have to be on one side or the other here, it seems like, or at least that's the thing that people expect. Uh, you know, you, you criticize one side, and I hear it in, in one ear. You criticize the other side, I hear it in that ear. But one thing I think people should understand is most voters, most voters in, in the Republican Party like both of these guys, okay? And, and they actually are going to end up having to make a decision about you know, who you know, they I, want for this time and this moment. Which and I is, think that that's really important. It came up on local radio yesterday with the former president on uh, News Radio uh, WHO 1040, cut 16. You know, DeSantis and, uh, or as I call him, other things. I won't use that because I'll keep it nice. But, uh, you know, he was a very disloyal person. He had no chance of winning the election. He was down by many, many, many points. It was over. And he asked me to endorse him. I endorsed him. And all of a sudden, he's running against me. I mean, I endorsed him. He went up like a rocket ship. The election was was over when I endorsed him. And I'm a person that believes in loyalty, and I don't like that kind of loyalty. So, uh, you know, he made his choice. I think he hurt himself very badly with MAGA and the MAGA voters. Has he? I don't think he has. I mean, what I hear, frankly... You know, and I still hear this. I was in Oklahoma just a couple of weeks ago, and and the people there were sort of saying, "Why can't these guys just figure out a way to get along?" Because we all have to, you know, be at the end of the day. You know, if you're a Republican, uh, you know, you all want to, you know, put the hat on of the guy who ends up winning and being able to work together. And that's something that I think is is really important. But it, it, just given how much this has ramped up to eleven so quickly in terms of the uh, the sniping back and forth. I just think that there's going to have to be a real uh, come to Jesus moment in the in the wake of however this primary turns out, uh, because I don't think that it's going to be uh, quick to put to bed in terms of the animosity. But you know what, happened. Ben? It's going to be fun to cover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> good, good for us. I, I love it. Right? I'm just hearing you get so excited. I realize how unique this is. We've never seen anything like this. I mean, this is this is a, a former president running to come back and, and, and take the White House away. And it's 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 historically unprecedented since Grover Cleveland. And so I just think this is the kind of thing that uh, you know, if, if you if you have a bug for politics, uh, this is a fascinating moment. It, it really is, and we'll we'll see it happens, especially when that president comes back and is leading the rest of the field by such a wide margin. For yeah. now, uh, hey, uh, and by the way, the only one that can get these huge crowds still. Uh, and he's the probably the most known person in the world. Ben Dominich, thanks so much. Great to be with you, Brian. All right, we come back. It's your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. A lot more to come. Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
We are back. Just a couple of minutes here. Let's try to get in Rosemary from WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Rosemary. Hey, Brian. I'm a longtime listener. I love your show. I love you. Um, I just had to make a comment about Donald Trump. I am a um, very strong Republican, but I cannot after – I hope he's listening to this. I hope he, he realizes how other people are um, viewing him. Um, he acts like a petulant child, and after going after Kaylee McEnany the other day, I will never vote for him again. That's my comment. Yeah, a lot of people are upset. Like, for example, my point with Kaylee, if you have a problem with anybody that you're friendly with will work for you, call him. Text her. Why rip her on, on a public social media platform? It doesn't make any sense. And Rick Grinnell doubled down on it, by the way. Rick Grinnell, the former ambassador of Germany, I think, he came out and said Kaylee's been disloyal. Well, that's not her job as Sabila. Her job is now to be an analyst and, and a host and an anchor and uh, report the news. And no matter who you want to win or don't want to win, your goal is to... To, to do what you're hired to do and also answer to your audience, not a person. So it was a brushback pitch that didn't work because uh, Kaylee McEnany is beloved in Trump world. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Your call's next. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. For the first time in more than a decade, Congress will spend less next year than this year. In fact, Fiscal Responsibility Act is the only bill that reduces overall spending, reduces non-defense spending, and reduces the deficit unlike any other debt limit increase in recent history. And that is very happy Kevin McCarthy yesterday as his debt compromise Debt ceiling compromise goes over to the Senate. 71 Republicans did not vote for it, but 314 overall legislators did to 117. So it moves forward. Uh, 71 Republicans voted no. 46 Democrats voted no, including people like AOC, people on the way uh, far left. Didn't. Some of the ones like Jim Jordan is noteworthy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a yes. Jim Jordan was a yes. Uh, Tom Massey was a yes. Why, for Massey's case, because he's got a guarantee of his 12 appropriations bills uh, that will pass. And if they don't pass them, uh, then they get 1% off the total uh, spending uh, until they, of course, do it. But that passes the House. Let's see what happens when they grind it up in the Senate. Adam Brandon joins us now, president of FreedomWorks. Uh, and Bra- Adam, uh, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. This is this is actually a really important topic that we're talking about, not just what happens with the bill, but what happens with the debt? This is uh, we haven't had a long been about a decade since we've had a serious conversation about debt and deficit as a country. And frankly, it's, it's time we start doing it, especially ahead of a presidential cycle. So Newt Gingrich said, um, hey, you know what? This begins it. This is much you could do with the debt ceiling. But when you get power and you have the House and you could do actually the budgeting, this will continue the path. He had three straight balanced budgets, but he said that didn't happen right away. You feel you feel, you just can't support this, though, Adam, right? My organization, in all transparency, FreedomWorks, we key voted against the deal. We thought there could have been there was a lot left on the table. Uh, that being said, if I'm going to approach this with a glass half full attitude, it's that, OK, like the Speaker Gingrich said, this is the beginning of the conversation. But let's be frank, in the next 10 years, right now we're talking about $31 trillion in debt today. In 10 years, we're going to have over 50 
trillion dollars in debt. And this deal really didn't do anything to change that. So the debt is still a massive problem. If anything, this is a speed bump. But I think that we're at an inflection point as a country. So look, anyone who's going to engage in a conversation on how we get spending under control, um, I'd like to be part of that conversation. So here's Carlos uh, Jimenez of Florida. Cut nine. He wasn't at the uh, negotiating table, and uh, and we don't have all the power. Uh, it's uh, it's really good to sit, you know, outside and not be, you know, the person in the arena actually doing the negotiations, and then criticize uh, whatever comes out. Uh, you know, I hate to say that about the senator, but that's reality. Look, I think we got the best deal that we could with the cards that we have. Uh, we need better cards, and that has to come in 24. And if we do have those better cards in 24, the results would be much better for the American people. He's referring to Rand Paul and Mike Lee, uh, who right. are very critical, and they're not going to vote for it in any way, shape, or form. But I, I will agree with, with, with you know, when we're talking about that a lot of this will be settled in 24. That's one of my concerns with this bill is it really punted until after that election. And that's kind of a game that I see played again and again in D.C. We'll take a deal. The cuts will come later on. The cuts will come after the next election cycle. And everyone keeps calling back to this, well, we don't have enough people to pass this. Well, what does that mean? You need to have the White House. You need to have 60-plus senators. You need to have an overwhelming majority in the House. And that's just never going to happen. So what we need to figure out a way to do is actually get spending under control when you don't have all the cards. I mean, this is I think most of your audience has played sports or poker. You never get the field you want. You have to try and advance as far as you can when you have the opportunity. I think in this bill we could have gone further. We're okay. We're moving on now. But um, when you get to the next step of this, what I'm hoping is we just don't forget about debt and deficit until after the election. Um, I think actually for Republicans, if you focus on culture wars only in this upcoming election cycle, I think you're going to lose the independence. I think the independents in America know that this bill is coming due and they want to see responsible adult leadership on getting spending under control. Right now, Donald Trump has about a 30 point lead overall and a pretty substantial lead in just about every early state. Do you expect that to st- to, to maintain itself? Well, normally I would say no, because I look back at Jed Bush and it's like at this early in the race, it's about name ID and the race hasn't begun. However, one thing I think is a little different about this race is President Trump is uh, he's kind of running as the incumbent more than than as someone who's uh, uh, just in an open primary. And that does give him a little bit of an advantage. And then also, if I look at, the, at how the numbers break down, uh, Governor DeSantis is incredibly popular with college-educated Republicans. But co- Republicans without a college degree, that's where Trump draws his main base of support. So what I'm looking to see is, does DeSantis start to cut in to the non-college-educated Republican primary voter? Because if he does, he's going to be in, in much better shape. But if you go back in the past, remember— Donald Trump struggled in Iowa the first go around. Uh, Ted Cruz actually won that. And so if you go back, I, I think if you're Donald Trump, if, you need, if he does struggle in New Hampshire and he does struggle in, uh, in Iowa, that certainly doesn't mean he's out because his strength actually is going to come a lot later in the primary. Cycle. I want you to hear some of the sparring he did with a local radio station on DeSantis, because a lot of people are uncomfortable when DeSantis goes to Trump. Trump has been leading the charge in the hits. And DeSantis is just now firing back. Listen to this. Cut 17. Governor DeSantis's people would, would 
disagree with you that uh, that they uh, did uh, did not lock it down. Oh well, he locked but, down. No, he yeah. did. He I, locked I know. Down. I, it's a point of disagreement. Yeah. In fact, he closed down the beaches. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, we have him saying it on on tape. He closed down the beaches. Mm-hmm. He closed up schools. He he locked that he locked that state down. In fact, if you remember, he didn't want people coming into the state. He wanted to close down the highways, and we rejected that. So Donald Trump going after Governor DeSantis on the pandemic handling, which is odd. Well, this is I think I made a reference to this earlier. Uh, We're going to get really sucked into this presidential race as an American society. We always do. But if you look at this, the House, the House is such an important part of how you govern. The House is where spending comes from. The House is if you're going to have legislation move, you got to move it through the House it's it's arguably the most important policy branch of government. And if we get so caught up in the in the fight between the, the presidential candidates, we lose sight of policy. I think we may lose sight of the real goals in 2024, which would be, from my perspective, not just the White House, but also the Senate and, the, and keeping the House and expanding the House majority. And my big fear is that in the tit for tat that goes on, we're going to lose, uh, you know, where's health care? Where's reforming, you know, our entitlement program? Where's some of these other conversations? So there's a lot of horse race to happen at the presidential cycle. But I think if Republicans are going to gain in the House and the Senate, they're going to need to show the American people a policy agenda, which they didn't do in 2022. They just ran against Democrats. I think this cycle, Republicans are going to actually have to run and stand on something. How do you feel about the infighting with between it? Remember, famously, it got really personal with Hillary and Obama, it got personal with Buchanan and H.W. Bush, it got personal with W. Bush and McCain. People were almost uncomfortable uh, now already with DeSantis and Trump and Trump going at uh, Nikki Haley uh, when right. he does. So is this typical? And how does that play out on the national stage? Well, one thing I want to point to whenever we talk about this is, yes, if you look back at the last – uh, Senate cycle, when you go back to, say, Pennsylvania, the, the Republican candidates just kicked the crap out of each other. And so when you've got time for the, the actual election, they were all bruised and beaten. And, if, and I think you mentioned the Democratic primaries. Look, the Democrats moved their primaries away from Iowa and away from New Hampshire to South Carolina for a reason. The Democratic Party is going to stop having contentious primaries, and they're going to move more to coronations. And if Joe Biden, which I would not be surprised if he uses health, uses the melanoma that he had to drop out of this race late in October, that would set up a coronation for someone like a Gavin Newsom to go to South Carolina win and wrap up the nomination. Meanwhile, there's a slugfest going on over at Team GOP. That's the way it's going to be. My hope would just be this, that the slugfest is about policy and issues, and it's not about personalities. Because if this is a race about personalities, that would end up favoring the Democrats. If it's an issue about who's best going to move policy forward, that's a good fight to have. And that helps sharpen your policy uh, and sharpen the fight against the eventual Democratic nominee. Yeah. But look, Democrats are learning to try to avoid contentious primaries. And Republicans are going to have to learn how to adjust to that world as well. Uh, Adam Brandon, final question. The problem is uh, for that in policies, they agree 97 percent. And if they don't, the most of the Republican Party is with that whole MAGA agenda, you know, from the border to foreign policy. So they're going to have to make it about personality, aren't they? 
No, I don't think so, because I think they could, they, you could, when you look at issues that we're not talking about, look, I remember 10 years ago, it was Obamacare, Obamacare, Obamacare. I haven't heard a peep from Republicans about how you're going to try and reduce costs and increase, uh, you know, patient choice in health care. I haven't heard a peep about how you're going to put Medicare and Social Security nice. and entitlements on a long term. There's Good. lots of Substance. Guys Adam's about substance. Adam Brandon, President of Freedom Works. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for having me. Hey, we'll do a simulcast with Barney and Company, then come back with your calls. Don't move. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. In a matter of moments, we're going to talk a little bit about one of our big three we have not discussed much, and that is the problems that the administration's have, excuse me, the House is having, getting the Christopher Ray to respond to their request for information and documents, and he's just not doing it. He's slow marching, denying he has him. And then finally, with this one uh, whistleblower request, who filled out the 1023 form, talking about a possible bribery of Joe Biden, then vice president, not coming up with it, then admitting he has it, then says, I'll let you let you look at it in the skiff, and that's it. And that's not going to be good enough because of the redaction possibility. So let's listen in. It's Brian Kilmeade time. Good morning to you, Brian. Uh, House Oversight Chair James Comer, let's get right to it may hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. It's all about a, a subpoena for documents that allegedly connect then-Vice President Biden to a primary scheme. The FBI says no, but you can come and look at them yourself at the agency. Um, the Republicans say that's not good enough. Is this the right move by Republicans? Well, I mean, it's not their only move, but it, to investigate Joe Biden and his family's links to international mm. business and to find out who exactly was doing the trading and what were they getting in return. And then you have an FBI agent who says, listen, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to the FBI and I want you to take this down. This is my this is my complaint. And then nothing happens. So they go to the House and they go to Comer and they go to Grassley and they say, this is my complaint, but it's not going anywhere. So Comer goes back and says, can you show me his complaint that's written down and taken and sworn to? No, I don't think I don't know what form you're talking about, but we wouldn't give it to you anyway. Finally, they admit they have a form. And then he says, you could see it in a skiff, but we're going to redact it first. It's unclassified. I understand if you want names to be redacted. Comer says, I'll do that, too. But he doesn't want substance. So he says, basically, you're going to get a subpoena. Why does he not comply? Yeah, very good question. I want to move on uh, to talk about former FBI director James Comey. Uh, He's blaming Donald Trump for poor opinions of the FBI. Listen to this and I'll get your thoughts. I think it's largely because Donald Trump and those around him have seen the FBI as a threat. And so they've taken a blowtorch to try and tear down that threat. It's really unfortunate. The notion that the FBI is some sort of leftist cabal out to get the Republicans is so crazy. It just shows you how crazy our times are. It shows you how crazy he is. I it's mean, he's because the cause of, of how they behave. Right, Brian? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, let's be honest. 
their actions is responsible for those opinions. Him in particular, he, he knew that Hillary Clinton was investigating, mm. was, was causing all this fake uproar with Russia. He knew it was Hillary Clinton's plot and plan to do it. He, know that, he knew that John Brennan already briefed Barack Obama, president at the time, about this, and Vice President Biden was there, yet he still went forward with it, never said, I don't know if the dossier is true. Really? You don't know if the dossier is true? But you wrote a million, you gave, offered Christopher Steele a million dollars to verify everything in it and he came up empty and the source wasn't even inside Russia that fed Christopher Steele this. If we're able to find this out years later, why was he not able to find out in real time? And if you don't want people to trust the FBI, don't look at Peter Strzok's text messages when he talked about how there's a plan to stop Donald Trump and the smelly walnut uh, shoppers and the negative things to say about that with Lisa Page and Andy McCabe. This is all FBI upper brass that have been disclosed, uh, been disclosed and exposed. And James, uh, you know, James Comey, I don't love the way he was fired, but man, did he ever deserve to be fired? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Listen, while I still have you here, I want to talk about the GOP uh, presidential primary. It's really getting it. It was always promised to be interesting, but it's getting really interesting. Looks like Mike Pence jumping in next week, maybe Chris Christie. Uh, we had the first, I think, debate coming up in August here on Fox. Um, fascinating stuff. And then you have the Democrats who are not going to have any debates. What do you think of that? And they have a president that, doesn't, that does not want to campaign. So he's not even out there raising right. money. So he's not having rallies. He's not telling people uh. how bad the Republicans are and how, and how Donald Trump would hurt him. It doesn't even matter. It's the Rose Garden strategy for an aging president, and he's going to use surrogates to get the word out, and he's going to let the Republicans try uh. tear each other's eyes out. And I think that's, what, that's going to be yeah. the president's plan. I don't know if it'll fly. But we'll have, we'll have to see because he's not going to be able to get much done and look like an effective president in divided government. So I don't know how he gets past that. And I don't know if you're a Democrat with aspirations and thinks you're going to be president, why you're not running. Didn't stop Ted Kennedy. Yeah, Didn't stop exactly. others. Didn't That's stop a, Pat Buchanan against Bush H.W. Bush. Yeah, dare to be great. All right, Brian, great stuff as always. Thanks for joining us this morning. Have a great day. No, no problem, Ashley. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. So it's real interesting. Iowa and New Hampshire again the focus for Republicans, but New Hampshire and Iowa are not the focus for Democrats. They have blown it up and gone to South Carolina. New Hampshire has it in their state constitution to be the first primary. They're not going to be muscled out. And in the general, do you really want to lose New Hampshire and Iowa before you even play the game of one votes cast? You have totally alienated those two states. Listen to Britt Hume talking about what's happening in Iowa right now, and that is Republican, Republican, Republican. You got Nikki Haley there since February, Tim Scott there all day, DeSantis there for the last two days, and Trump comes is there in about an hour. Cut 28. Well, it's remarkable in the sense that he's now referring directly to at least the things that Trump has said. Uh, he hasn't really uh, attacked the former president directly by criticizing him or his record directly. But he's going about it the way he is, which is not a full frontal assault. Well, maybe that will come. Um, but there are risks to that, as I mentioned. And so, you know, we're getting a, full, a fuller glimpse of him. And if anyone's going to slow down and close the gap, you would think it's going to be Governor DeSantis without there with his uh, with his wife, who's unbelievable in front of the camera, as good as anybody I've seen 
of course, with her PGA background as a reporter and her anchor status in Jacksonville, it shouldn't be a surprise. But, I mean, that's how good she is and how well she works uh, with her husband. So she's going to be an asset. I think she's going to be everywhere, which is amazing because they have three young kids. And that I don't care how much help you have. It is absolutely going to be she's going to have her hands full. Plus, I think some of them are old enough for preschool or something. Uh, so somebody's got to watch them. And they're in a rented house over in Tallahassee. But mostly they're going to be on the road for the next two years. So let's say at least till next February after, after Iowa and New Hampshire. From the Fox News radio studios in midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Uh, Bill Hemmer is going to be with us shortly. Lee Zeldin's in studio. I uh, ran for governor, longtime congressman, uh, still serving the National Guard and uh, weighing in on all things politics related. You had the tough, you had the tough decision, uh, Congressman, on DeSantis and Trump. You came out and said it was Trump, but here's Ron DeSantis campaigning for you up until the last minute, having these huge rallies on Long Island. So is he upset at you? I have a, a great relationship with a lot of these uh, Republican presidential candidates. I think that Ron has been an exceptional governor. Uh, I think he'd be a great president. Uh, he was a colleague in the House, and uh, and now he's he's in. It's been interesting watching how the presidential race has developed over the course of the last half a year. Uh, it was a little bit more up in the air. Uh, could go different directions in December, January, February. I got to say, once the Bragg indictment came out, my observation was it launched Trump into another stratosphere. Uh, there were a lot of Republicans who came home to him when that happened. It's being reflected in polls all throughout the entire country. And it's not a knock on the rest of the field. Uh, there have just been a lot of people who have decided that he's going to be their candidate. Uh, and he has a commanding lead right now. Uh, what what I think you know, Governor DeSantis might have looked at was, hey, I have the legislature. We're going into session. Our session ends in May. Let's put together a whole bunch of different legislative accomplishments, work hard, and then announce there's a Ronald Reagan's 11th commandment where Republicans don't get after, go after another Republicans. There's clearly a Donald Trump 11th commandment. And, he goes after all. And he's going, he goes after everyone who goes after him. you think him. that's okay? Well, I'm not, I, I, me personally, I've always loved subscribing to the, uh, the, the idea that our competitors are – the Democrats were going up against in November. Uh, but my opinion aside, my, my feelings aside, the reality is as, as far as a decision of waiting until after the legislative session was over in, in Florida, it might have hurt, I think, underestimating the impact – of Trump going after him, uh, I think it it did result in. You think he waited too long to get in? When the when the attack started happening, you think she should have just change his plan? Uh, well, actually, well, from in one standpoint, you would say yes. But here's the other issue that I mentioned a couple minutes earlier: is I really think that the Bragg indictment launched Trump's candidacy to another stratosphere. So, regardless of whether you are Mike Pence, Tim Scott. 
uh, Nikki Haley, the list goes on. There, there are a lot of great uh, Republican candidates, prospective candidates, these people who would be uh, they would be great presidents. I just feel like it became much more of Trump's race to lose when you have Alvin Bragg and the left going after him the way that they are on on what was a, a BS indictment charge here in, in New York uh, on something that I don't know of any. But that's just one. Attorney. Does it bother you? The other two charges. Uh, Mar-a-Lago, would it be a different set? You don't think it'll matter? I, well, I, to, I, I think that if I was trying to take down Donald Trump and you had to you had to orchestrate which charges to go after first, you wouldn't be leading with Alvin Bragg going after this this charge in, in New York County. Uh, I don't I'm not aware of any district attorney in New York ever going after a federal campaign finance violation. And it it had the impact. I saw it here in New York. It had the impact where where people were looking for the possibility of going in a different direction. Maybe they they they, they wanted Trump not to run. Let's let give someone else their opportunity. But once that happened, they were coming home and saying, you know what, this is BS. I'm supporting Donald Trump. And Alvin Bragg is so weak. I mean, he goes after Danny Penny. Originally, he wasn't going to. Next thing you know, he has to arrest him because he saw protests in the street. So weak when he stood up and said, there's no case here. These guys quit. Guy writes a book, makes him look bad. Then he goes ahead with an indictment. No one knows where he's coming from or how this was organized. Um, But we'll see how this plays out. It's going to come out. He's got to come back right in February in the middle of some important primaries. And President Trump is really upset by that. He goes, they are affecting the election. Yeah, but it might actually help him in a in a primary. When you get pulled off the road, if February or March, Donald Trump has to sit inside of a courtroom as a defendant in this case for a primary. It may help. Now, what what will be interesting to see how it plays out is that there's a possibility it could even end up helping him with independent-minded voters uh, who are upset by this charge and feel like it's a political prosecution. And again, no knock on fantastic other candidates out there. I I, I think Ron DeSantis is the best governor in America. And I've said this publicly for a long time. Uh, I, I worked closely with, with Mike Pence and – you know, the list goes on of the, you know Tim Scott. It's a you know with what he did for the opportunity zones and 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 expanding our party. Even Vivek Ramaswamy has been impressing a lot of people with how you know, articulate uh, and passionate he's been out on the the trail. If you just if you asked me to read tea leaves, and I could be wrong, Brian, but if you asked me to read the tea leaves today, I think it's going to be a Donald Trump versus Joe Biden rematch. Wow, uh, here is Britt Hume on the expanding field, which is going to get two more candidates: Mike Pence. And Chris Christie, cut 27. This Republican field is growing so big now that if they have a debate, they might have to hold it in a stadium, not to accommodate the crowd, but to accommodate the candidates. So it's going to be fun to see how that works out. I hope it doesn't end up in one of these deals where you have, you know, they have the, you have the regular group and then you have the undercard, uh, separate tiers of debaters. Um, that didn't work very well last time. Let's hope we don't have that this time. Yeah, and then you had people go to the outside if their poll numbers are down. And what polls? I mean, who believes the polls anymore? It's not as if they're the standings in baseball where it's a definitive win and loss. But I don't think Don, if Donald Trump has this lead, I don't think he's debating. And do you think that would be a mistake? 
Uh, I happen to be somebody who's in favor of candidates participating in these debates. I think that the Democrats should have their debates. I think Joe Biden should participate. I think Republicans should have their debates, uh, that the entire field should be participating in that. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to uh, to be involved in these debates. Now, as far as the debate themselves, how they get set up, who's moderating them, the questions, uh, the format, fair questions for candidates to ask and to go back and forth. They try to make sure that it's a level playing field, that's a fair debate. Uh, at the end of the day, you have to put a process together that will allow hopefully all candidates uh, in both parties to be participating. As far as the Democratic side, I think that they would never let Joe Biden get on a debate stage with Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson because that alone might become an existential threat uh, to his general election chances. They might actually be able to take him down in the Democratic primary. Let me primary. ask you, you know the political mindset. Why is people not going after Joe Biden? I mean, his numbers look terrible. I want you to hear what this political reporter uh, said yesterday. I believe it was on Brett Baer's show, and uh, her name is Meredith McGraw. On Biden struggling, cut 25. Across the board, Biden is, President Biden is struggling in the polls when it comes to the economy, his handling of immigration, um, his approval ratings. He's really in a tough place um, with his polling right now, and that's going to continue to be a drag on him. It's been interesting to see Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and uh, Marianne Williamson poll uh, higher than we've seen some of the uh, Republican primary challengers to Trump poll. And I think that's sort of an indication of some of the weaknesses that President Biden has had when it comes to uh, his own party's approval. And yet nobody's running, you know, RFK's a fringe candidate, even though he's got the most famous name in America with a famous dad and famous family. You know, I don't see a lot of a sport. He wouldn't even attack Joe Biden. He's been a friend of mine. Really? He's been a friend of mine? Is that how you run? You know, he's now polling in the 20s and some of these polls that are out. Closer than most Republicans are to Trump. And they're aren't really any tax on Bobby Kennedy Jr. right now. A little different than the Republican field at the moment. It's possible that Bobby Kennedy Jr. continues to grow. And there are a lot of Democrats who have a, a concern with competency with President Biden, uh, with, with age and ability. Uh, they're not happy with policy. There's a big opening right now of a disenfranchised Democratic Party base. I remember January, February of 2020. In my life might be the best moment that I remember of the uh, the American economy growing, the border becoming more secure, foreign policy being strong. It was just before COVID hit. And for anyone who's out there like, oh, I don't know, maybe the country's lost, we'll never be able to get it back. It wasn't that long ago when a lot was going right in this country. Since Joe Biden has come into office in January of 2021, so much has been heading in the wrong direction. And I feel like it's not just Republicans who believe this. And it's not just about an independence. There are even Democratic Party. That's why Donald voters. Trump is going uh, higher than anything else is because his policies look better every day. And more than anything else, and we get away from some of the drama, and we're seeing uh, a president just MIA. No sit-downs, no press conferences, maybe one next week. Nothing really happens. Nothing really gets done. So you just see it's almost like a zombie presidency. He didn't do any of the negotiating on this. Can you imagine Donald Trump not negotiating on this? He was negotiating in front of the camera with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on a, on a, like a, on a pool spray. But Lee, stick here and stick around because when we come back, why I thoroughly believe Mayor Adams was so right to take on that uh, that Cooney 
commencement speaker and talk about how great this country was the very next day and what he would have done had he heard the anti-Semitic comments, the anti-Israeli comments, the anti-police comments if he was on that stage that day. I want to get your take on that because I know you have a real problem, as I do, with Governor Hochul, not only on her with Danny Penny, the Marine, but on this. Don't move. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Israel continues to indiscriminately rain bullets and bombs on worshipers, murdering the old, the young, those who carry the revolution, the people, the masses, those who brought the ferocity of the violence, those who need our protection, they will carry this revolution. That the law is a manifestation of white supremacy that continues to oppress and suppress people in this nation and around the world. And that is some of the despicable remarks from a CUNY speaker asked by her fellow classmates to give the commencement address at this uh, City University of New York law school uh, commencement. So she was at everybody knew what she was going to say. And she condemns the police, condemns Israel, condemns whites. And yet uh, no one said anything and they got clapped. And there's only four members of the trust of, of their board of trustees that actually protested this. With me now is Lee Zeldin, former New York uh, gubernatorial candidate, longtime congressman from Long Island. Congressman, you're upset by this, as, as Mayor Adams should be, as everybody should be, right? For a long time, the City University of New York has had these issues and they're only getting worse. It's a cancer. And you had, at first, I had Jewish professors reaching out to me. They feel like they're no longer welcome. The The faculty student administration is passing BDS resolutions. There's a, a hearing on anti-Semitism. The New York City Council built around the schedule for the CUNY chancellor, and then he no-shows. Last year at the CUNY law commencement, there was a speaker who was similar issues – anti-Semite going after uh, a, a Jews. And they the become lawyers out in, their, in the marketplace. So this new speaker is out there graduating law school, talking about this system that she is now going to enter. She really wants to tear down. It was a call to arms. It was a call to action to tear down the rule of law and calling it white supremacy, going after Israel, accusing them of, of conducting lynch mobs, calling the NYPD fascist. And for the second year in a row, you have the situation where, where graduates, family, friends who want to go there and just enjoy the moment, the hard work, their dream coming true. They're, they have a law degree. You can't go through a commencement address, a commencement ceremony, enjoy every bit of it without having to listen to that crap. So uh, I feel like those who are out there offended, whether you're Jewish or not, have every right to feel that way. But where's the action? Right. And where's uh, Mayor Adams, when he heard this, gave a, gave us a call for patriotism the next day and even said this yesterday. If I was on that stage when those comments were made, I would have stood up and denounced them immediately because we cannot allow it to happen. Stuff like this gives me hope with Mayor Adams, you know? Yeah, so the words are right. Here's the thing. I believe that he's going to have another moment where this opportunity will present itself. And he's going to be on a stage. And he's going to hear somebody with a microphone spewing hate like that. Exactly. They don't like cops. So you say the right thing. And you, I, we could praise him for saying the right thing. 
what what happens now? What happens next? And I would say most immediately, you have a taxpayer-funded university with an administration needs to be overhauled and Jewish students and faculty who need to feel welcomed again. And taxpayer funds, in my opinion, should be immediately suspended in order to enact these changes to the culture and to the administration. You can condemn hate speech, and it's better than the, the other elected official who doesn't even have the courage to do that. So I'll praise you for it. Now we have to step up and do more. And by the way, the, the, the other piece is that these trustees that run CUNY, some of them are speaking out. That's great. The New York Post today, names, names, shows faces. These are the people who are saying that this is bad and also names, names, and shows faces of the other trustees who are silent. We need to have trustees who are all going to stick up for what's right. And if the voters uh, say we want this woman to give this commencement address just because they voted her to give these remarks doesn't mean that it is right. As was right. been pointed out by others, there's a difference between free speech and hate speech. This is hate speech, and it has no place. How about this? She's from Yemen, and she's upset with our country. Bill Thompson is one of those board of trustee members who's, who came out condemning it. The vice chair, Sandra Smith, too, put together a joint statement describing Muhammad's remarks as hate speech. Thompson insisted Wednesday that that statement was written on behalf of the whole board. No, it wasn't. You sign that if you believe that. The other thing is it's affordable. So if I if my dream is to go to law school, it's a, when people say I can't afford to go to college, they're just wrong because there's always something you could do. Three credits at a time, you could always do it. That city university is affordable. So if I'm sitting in that class and I'm hearing the anti-American stuff, I say I have to suck it up because I can't afford to go anywhere else. It's got a decent name. You know, they test you. But their opinions just make my life miserable because I had to keep my mouth shut. And one of the professors a couple of years ago was giving a sermon in New Jersey talking about death to Israel. The list goes on. They, there are some real deep issues inside that city university. It needs well, to there's deep up. issues inside the Democratic Party. So, because I think over 45 percent favor, only 45 percent favor Israel in their Palestinian conflict. Where's where's Kathy Hochul? Where's Joe Biden? Last week, the White House put out their strategy to fight anti-Semitism just before the Memorial Day uh, weekend. Now you have an opportunity the next week to implement your strategy to step up and say this is wrong. Tax dollars are going to pay for this city university. I am going to do everything in my power to stop it. I saw that uh, Fox had an exclusive on a new bill from uh, Congressman Mike Lawler to cut off uh, federal tax dollars to these universities that are empowering anti-Semitism. Good. Where's the rest of Congress? We need everyone stepping up. We need the president to step up. And as you pointed out, inside the Democratic Party, there has been this push further and further to the left where voices are being empowered, embraced, elevated, promoting anti-Semitism. It needs to be crushed. I just wonder how many, how much longer the American Jewish vote will stay Democrat. I know Harry Truman delivered Israel. I get it, a Democrat. But right now it's becoming more and more evident that there's one party pro-Israel and one anti. And you're in the right one. Yeah, this isn't the same Democratic Party. Right. Lee Zeldin, always great to see you. Thanks, Brian. Always taking action, always weighing in. Bill Hemmer's next. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
if he would read it, he would know that all the excuses that he's giving us, uh, that he wants to protect sources, and that's important to protect sources, but that's not an issue with this document the way I read it, and he ought to uh, come forth. they got to produce this document. You know, they're up against what the Durham report has said about the shortcomings and the political bias of the FBI, and this is just one more example of them not being forthcoming to the public because the public's business ought to be public. And uh, there's no reason for an unclassified document to be held in secret. Senator, how damning is this document to the sitting U.S. president? Well, it's uh, I, I, I don't know that. And but that's you, what we but need. You've to, read it. I read it. Uh, let's put it this way. There's accusations in it. But uh, that's uh, it's not for me to make a judgment about whether these accusations are accurate or not. It's up to my job to make sure the FBI is doing their job. Senator Grassley is an example of an 88 year old. 89, I think. I think and I'd have to Google it. You know, he, he doesn't look like he's 50. But no one would look at him and say, wait a second, he's lost his fastball. The guy's sharp as heck. Super vibrant. Yeah, so, yeah. so when people bring up things about uh, President Biden, we're not saying every 80-year-old shouldn't be president. Look at Senator Grassley. I'm not sure what his energy's like, but he seems to be nonstop I think for his 50 years. Uh, there's 99 counties in Iowa, and what he has done, I think he's been elected six times, I think. Maybe it's five. Sorry, I'd have to go to Google or AI to determine that. But AI, I'm, I prefer I'm, AI. I'm not going to do that right now and interrupt this conversation. Um, he goes to 99 counties, every single one of them, for his reelection campaign. Yeah. That's, that's how you win in Iowa. And you can be – so for those people who think that it's ageism, it's not. It's, it's President Biden. We're watching him refuse to talk to people, not do any press conferences, not do any really any one-on-ones, not weigh in on policy issues, not get involved in negotiations on this debt ceiling, which is so consequential. Bill Hammer here, co-anchor of America's Newsroom, also, uh, I don't know, uh, also a key component of our election coverage, which is officially more than underway. I mean, I, the field is almost rounded don't out. Don't you think, like, I, I said today to Carl and Dana, I said, Carl Robin, Dana Perino, I said, it feels like the knob has turned as of today. Yeah. Because you got DeSantis in Iowa for two days, now in New Hampshire, and you got a Trump town hall that you're going to see on Fox later tonight. So it's, 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 it's on. Yeah, it is. And I guess let's first uh, talk about the FBI situation. Sure. So uh, in, in basically what we understand is this FBI agent came forward and said, I saw some bribery going on, about $5 million that Vice President Biden profited from. I filled out a 1029. 1023? Yeah. Um, FTN, something, something, something. We'd have to Google it. But it's one of those things that you take it down, but you don't verify it. So you take down, okay, this is what this person said to me. That, and I, that's correct. And I file it away. They're getting frustrated. Nothing happened with it. They go up to Comer and they say, hey, listen, I did this. I saw this. I, and go get the form I filled out with the FBI. So the status of it now is after this phone conversation yesterday with the head of the FBI, Christopher Ray, they will allow them to come to the FBI and read it for themselves. But they physically are not going to give it to them. I don't know what the difference is, Brian, but that, that's what the FBI has to say. They're worried so about far. redactions. So – Okay, so what Grassley's saying is, when I asked him point blank, is there something illegal? He wouldn't characterize it. He said, it's not my job. It's my job to make sure the FBI is doing its job. So where does that leave us? I know Comer's been on our air for months now. He, he, he thinks he took a bribe. Grassley did not go that far. Now, who's right? I don't know. Would it be easier if we got the document and could decide for ourselves? Sure. But it's unclassified. 
So if you have an unclassified document that the Congress has and you're the FBI director, give it to them. What's the problem? The problem might be that the FBI director thinks that these guys are going to go on a wild goose chase and they're going to be chasing the wrong tail. And I don't maybe Ray is right about that. You know, but between Hunter and his uncle, they a four year investigation into a simple tax. I think it's five or six now. I mean, the head spins on this. But you think about how many countries they went to and how much money they brought in. I know. Um, Uh, And how many people benefited? Where is that money? One assumes there's where there's smoke, there's fire. But the the fact that Ray is not turning over this form um, might it's possible now. It might leave this thing dead in the water. With if contempt charges yeah, don't move forward, I'm, don't, don't doesn't that illegal? Isn't that illegal? It just seemed to me that the path? whole contempt threat this week just kind of blew right over their head. I think it's coming. Don't you think okay, so? Okay, all right. Uh, here is Devin Nunes on why the FBI has no choice. Cut thirty three. For me, as you know, just an American out here now, not not elected to the Congress anymore. There is no way in holy hell that. Ray should be able to get away with what he got away with in 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, mm-hmm. and don't even get started in what Durham uncovered, where essentially nobody was prosecuted at the yeah. DOJ and FBI. They are hopelessly corrupt, if I could put it lightly. So he feels that way. John Radcliffe says they have no right to do this. Christopher Ray continued. First, he wouldn't admit there was a document. And he said, yeah, it's a document, mm-hmm. and I'm uh, not going to give it. And then he said, well, you can go watch it and read in a skiff. He's like, well, I'm worried because you're going to redact everything. Yeah. Well, he's like, you redact names. He's like, I would have redacted names. Mm-hmm. So think about this. Three whistleblowers come forward. Then we watch four testify, probably during your show. Yeah. And one was Marcus Allen. The name comes to me. All their lives have been ruined because they came forward and watched what they thought was the FBI going a different direction than the one they were trained to yeah, serve. Yeah. I, th- I thought the testimony was Electric. Ra- rather compelling. But and, what is the follow-up? I also think the fact that their lives have been turned upside down is a bit of an indictment against the U.S. government. Yeah. I was sitting there listening to them. Man, I would not want to be them. And the lawmakers went back and found some tweets that were 10 years old, some of them legitimate, some not. So they're making the case against them that, that, they're, Linda Sanchez. that they're nefarious and that they're, no, they're up to no good. Um Working within the U.S. government, um, the, the, these guys, and they don't have a career, right? So and, and they don't have a career because they talk back. Well, listen, I, I hate what Edward Snowden did because I kept saying, "Why didn't you just use the whistleblower process?" Now go really. Uh, I'm a civilian working in this mm-hmm. agency. If I came forward, he said I wouldn't have been heard. And who knows what would have happened to me? And I thought, well, you got to be kidding me. You took the easy way out. You go to Hong Kong, then you go to Russia. Yeah. But now, when you see these yeah, FBI I, agents. I got it, but I still don't like the way Ed Snowden operated. Absolutely. Other people disagree. But, 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 I, but I lost my argument when I said there was a pathway for a whistleblower. Right, right. When I'm watching these I careers get yeah, I, I know when I lose. I yeah. uh, don't love what he did. Yeah. Uh, also, that crazy guy, uh, we don't even know about that soldier that gave up all that stuff in that chat room. Uh, that's jeopardizing other national interests. From the state of Mass, for the Commonwealth Absolutely. of Massachusetts. So we'll, we'll see what happens as this goes forward. I'm just wondering at some point if the FBI disbanded an agency rather than answer questions about the Hunter Biden investigation. Yeah. They disbanded the whole thing.
Yeah. That's uh, three people. Yeah, did you see the White House briefing where the reporter from the New York Post asked John Kirby? Yeah, you want to hear that? What he thinks about a corrupt possibility yeah. of a family. I think I think we should. Do we have that one? I think we do, Allison, right? I think it's 36. Is that correct? 53% of the public, including a fourth of Democrats, believe, quote, Joe Biden was involved with his son in an, in an illegal influence peddling scheme. Uh, there's, of course, evidence that the president interacted with his relatives, associates from China, uh, Mexico, Kazakhstan, Russia, and Ukraine. Uh, so what do you say to the majority of Americans who believe that the president is himself corrupt? President, the president, the president has spoken to this. Uh, the president has spoken to this, uh, and there's nothing to these claims. And as for the the, the whistleblower issue that you talked about, and uh, um, and the, the, the document, I, I, I believe the FBI has spoken to that. And you're going to have to go to them on that. Who is your takeaway? Here's what I'd say: um, When Trump was in office, he got that question every day. Every day or at least every week, right? right? That question gets dropped yesterday, and everybody in that room is stunned. <laughs> Some people are even chuckling that the question was asked, and John Kirby doesn't have a good answer based on the long pause that he gave there. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's two different worlds between what Trump went through and what's happening with Biden. And I think when you factor in the Durham report subtly, not as much, and you factor in the Alvin Bragg stuff, and we see, then we see a pretty effective Trump machine working out of Mar-a-Lago. And then you see how, in my view, how bad the policies are economically, militarily, foreign policy-wise with this administration. These are elevating Trump. All these factors are elevating Trump. Maybe he was uh, uh, un uh, uh uh, unfairly attacked during his years. Maybe he did. Uh, he did have a, a. When you look at the Twitter files, he did have an axe to grind in terms of unfairness when it came to especially social media and getting his message out. When you see how many people were sidelined, and in fact, when you look at this court case by Alvin Bragg, there was a reason why nobody else took it up, including him. Mm. And he is unfairly prosecuted on an old case that's not consequential in a city that doesn't prosecute crime. Yeah, yeah, and um, that all helps to lift him up. So we had a poll today from Quinnipiac. They, they polled only Republican voters about the important issues that matter to them. You know what was number one? Inflation. Number two, immigration. Everything else was in single digits. And what are they? Those are strengths of Trump. Um, yeah, you could argue that. And we could also argue that maybe inflation over the next year and a half during this campaign, maybe it gets tamed. It's possible. I'm not saying it's a guarantee. But the economy, whether it's inflation yeah. or your wages or what kind of that, – that, that's or taxes, all that's going to determine not only who's the Republican nominee – but who I think ultimately wins mm-hmm. in 2024. Right. Uh, so the borders smashed. Four million people here illegally. So many gotaways, millions of gotaways. And we see an unwillingness to admit it or attack it. And then you see foreign policy wise. Please tell me if anyone you know thinks that we're better off with China right now. We're in a better place. And by the way, can you please tell me where Europe was worse when Trump was there as opposed to now as we look at a war, and even though I think it's worth fighting and backing with everything that we have, because to, to neutralize Russia is to our interest and to stop the invasions to the world's interest and our interest especially, 
Please tell me an area in which things are better. So I think what is very telling, and we we took Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire for about fifteen minutes. What'd you this think? Morning. I mean, I look. I I've I've covered these campaigns for decades, Brian. Uh, I am that old. Um, they get better and better on the stump the more and more they do it, and the more questions they take. The more times they deliver their stump speech, sometimes it's five or six times a day. Same speech. My gosh, it's got to be boring. He's not working off a teleprompter. He knows his policies because he lived them. He enacted them through law in the state of Florida. He's got a lot. To, he's got a lot to talk about. Um, there's very few pauses in what he has to say. There's no us. There's no ums. He's pretty rat-a-tat-tat. I I think his wife helps make a pretty good tandem there. What I see through this, however, is, and maybe you see this with Trump with Hannity later tonight on Fox, is that you, if you are paying attention, will be able to draw small lines of distinction between each candidate. And there will be some of them. Mm -hmm. And that's where where someone like DeSantis is trying to find an opening. I guarantee that it's going to work, but that's his strategy. Well, I'll tell you what, the whole uh, going after the curriculum in, in elementary school, they, they say so-called don't say gay bill. Uh, I think he's embracing that. The six-week abortion ban, he's not running from that conversation. Trump is not, definitely different. Well, on not, that. In the prime, not, not during the Iowa caucus. He will certainly not run away from that. Yeah. He's got to win one of those first but two. But Trump hasn't embraced six weeks. Um, correct. Correct. I think he's more around 15. Yeah. I think that's kind of what he hinted at earlier. Anyway, my point is, listen to these men yeah. and women carefully and see the lines of the distinction they try to draw on policy. Well, I just think also you have a fascinating with Ron DeSantis over the last few days, just taking on Trump but not dwelling on it, yeah. uh, going after it. And Britt Hume, wait, and you like Britt, right? I, I think for the most part, he's still in good graces. All right, good. With Bill Hammer. Uh, here's uh, Britt on the DeSantis tactic which has now been exposed of going at trump directly about the policies and accusations about what he's did and didn't do uh and this is cut 28 well it's remarkable in the sense that he's now referring directly at least to things that trump has said uh, he hasn't really uh, attacked the former president directly by criticizing him or his record directly but he's going about it the way he is which is not a full frontal assault but maybe that will come um but there are risks to that as i mentioned and so, you know, we're getting a full, a fuller glimpse of him. I, I kind of disagree. When he it comes it. to COVID, DeSantis has been out there. He said, man, I would have fired Fauci. Yeah. I did my own homework. I drew my own conclusions and I made my own decisions. And Florida prospered wildly because of it. And I agree with that. That's where he's not vulnerable. And just there's areas in which Trump is being attacked, which I don't think he's vulnerable either. Uh, Bill Hemmer's here for I booked him for two segments. The uh-huh. check has not cleared. If that <laughs> bothers Bill, he will not be here on the other side of the break. Back in a moment. Ron DeSanctimonious. It's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Bill, we're back for a few more minutes. Hey, now, yeah, what you got, buddy? Do you, did you have any? Did you have anybody booked for tomorrow's show? For tomorrow's show, we got a ton. Yeah, we got Cudlow and Maria B's coming on. We're going to be following these candidates too. 
Right. I mean, it's the knob has turned, as we said. And we're going to have a review of tonight's town hall with big time with uh, yes. President Trump confirmed on that. Right. And then you have I see. I want to just weigh in on one other thing. What's that? I think that Tim Scott's going to have his moment. I think that this guy, he's got $22 million. He was on with us today. They're going to have a huge marketing push. He goes, you're going to see. He told me today, he's like, you're going to see uh-huh. a movement. And the other thing is, I think Ron DeSantis is off to a really good start. I watched a lot of it. A lot of some people are upset that he has stuff written down on our prompter. I actually don't. I, I kind of like it. Uh-huh. I like the way he went back at Trump. And if I was coaching him, I would say get in the most hostile most challenging situations you can because he goes so deep on policy and the rationalization of what he's done that the better he gets. And I give you the best example of 60 minutes when they tried to get him by giving vaccines only to donors and areas that voted for him. He just tore it up. You can't, he he is very interesting, very interesting. Uh, And maybe smart policy too. And a good strategy. And it becomes newsworthy. Here's my question. If you just camp out in Iowa, can't you survive until January? Yeah. I I, I think so. Remember Chris Dodd, the senator from Connecticut? At Christmas time, he moved to Des Moines with his family. Right. And lived there. Did he live? No, he flamed out. Right. But he made it it to the caucus. But he never juiced up. All you need, my point is, all you need is to be able to pay for an Airbnb and you you need gas money. Right. And And, you can survive. Right. And And Tim Scott's got a million, uh, sorry, he's got a minimum of $20 million already. Right. Yeah, Tim Scott does. I think DeSantis has more and Trump is earning more. Why do you think Trump is going after DeSantis so hard? Simply because he thinks he's a legitimate threat? Or is it this way? I agree with that. No, it is a legitimate threat. Remember what he remember Cleveland, August 2015, when they blew the lid off that? That was something else. Politics hasn't changed since then. That was the night everything changed. Right. Cleveland, Ohio, 17 people on the stage. Trump comes out and tries to burn the place down. And he did. And the first the, the best thing to happen to Trump is to be challenged right away. He became the centerpiece. Would by, you by the questioners? Yes. And now, Chris Christie says the only reason he's going to get in is to go after Trump. Is that a campaign? Did he actually say that? Uh, I could find something that is pretty close to I, it. I think there's there's a part of him who thinks he can win, too. I do. Okay. He thinks that the things break right. his way. Mm-hmm. He's a, a tough debater, I'll tell you that. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. I, we sure will. I like the music. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.